0: finished the year very well Um, all those who have signed up for a murder mystery on a train and dessert uh, that will take place this coming or no it's not this coming that's saturday january the 18th at 7 p.m at the train depot in lapeer seven dollars a ticket and you can see jess or make checks payable to thornville baptist church offering envelopes if you've not uh, picked yours up yet are here Uh, on the table, and um, again, try to take the same number as last year, if at all possible, and um, sign up. So, that's good. There was a card from the Henrys, and I stumbled over that last week. Should I go get that? Hold that thought Great, got that yeah, in. That, that should have been in the bulletin. $50, plus
1: <laughs> other activities that they want
0: to Okay, great. Um, and I think I keep saying the Henrys, and I apologize for that. It's from Steve. Dear Pastor Fred and friends, thank you for your faithful prayers and financial support throughout 2019. I'm deeply grateful to God for each one of you. This has been the most challenging year of my life, but through it all, God has shown himself faithful in so many ways. I have much to be thankful for as we approach another year. It is my desire to continue serving him as he gives me strength and opportunity. Thank you for being a vital part of my life and ministry. In Christian love, Steve. Okay. One more, go away.
2: For anybody that's interested, especially the deacons and elders, Ed picked up the plans from the architect, so we have another sketch for anybody to look at that's interested.
0: Okay. And do we want to roll that out and pin it up somewhere in the backboard or something? Yeah, on the desk, on the floor out there, we can look at it. Yeah, great. After uh, communion, probably. Thanks. It's for the proposed, um, call it what you will, covering portico yeah. in the back. So it's, you'll, you'll see it on the print, but it's, um, it's a roof that we can drop off. Oh. Okay. Uh, scripture reading. <laughs> One more thing. Thank you. First uh, John 1. Let's stand and open our service with a prayer. Tom, can I ask you to open for us?
3: Take your Trinity hymnal this morning and turn to number 590, 590 in the red. Favorite hymn anyone? Yes, this Ashley. This is the day. This is the I think it's in the brown. Do we have a reason for this and why we look it up, Ashley? I love this song. It's, it just reminds me when I was a kid. 590. Yeah. Five. It's a great song. 590 in the brown. We sing it every morning in my class. Five nine zero. I said it and I just five ninety. D- Two songs in a row, Five nine
2: zero. D- oh.
3: Yes it is. Good eye. And it's short, so let's sing it twice. Cool. <clears throat>
0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Romans, the first chapter, and we'll be reading 18 through 32. Romans 1:18 through 32. You stand with me; we'll read together. are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor give thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Therefore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they do not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Ask that God would bless His word.
3: Take your red hymnals again and turn to number 470. Sorry. (laughs) Number 470 in the red.
2: Our scripture text this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 1. In this kind of extended Christmas series, a Savior has been born. We have looked at the truth that Jesus is a Savior for sin and for guilt. We define guilt, firstly, as something very objective. Guilt is the consequence of real sin. It's not a psychological ghost, a phantom of our imagination. Guilt exists because of real breach to God's law exists. Guilt is always associated with breaking law, could be societal law could be civil law, could be criminal law, or in our discussion, spiritual law. Guilt is always related to not measuring up to what the law says. Now, that's guilt. It's objective. But guilt feelings, that's something different. They are subjective. And they indicate a response to real or imaginary sin. And we listed two scenarios. They're both very real. Their first being that there is real objective guilt, that is because we sin, but with no guilt feelings. Do you know people like that? I know people like that. People whose conscience has been so abused, so denied, so suppressed our text says, who suppress the truth by their wickedness, verse 18, that they can sin and it doesn't bother them. It doesn't. Nothing shames these people anymore. Nothing embarrasses them. They're at peace with their sin. They are asleep in their sin. Nothing bothers them. If you don't know people like that I do know people like that and they are everywhere in our society and they are the hardest people to reach with the gospel because they will admit that they sin and they will go on to say I don't care they don't care and you try to make them care and you try to show them the consequences of sinning against God and breaking his law well they don't believe in God not that God anyway not the God of the Bible. And then secondly, we, we looked at people who feel guilty. They do, but they're innocent with regard to sin. They didn't do anything wrong. Instead, wrong was done to them. Now with these people, everything <laughs> bothers them, even though it should not bother them. So you have these two extremes. They suffer from a false guilt, and they're more crippled than the first group because their wounded conscience won't let them have peace. They just can't get it in their head that God could forgive them, that God could cleanse them of their lifestyle and their wickedness, of their past. And so they carry that guilt in Bunyan's Pilgrim's progress, <clears throat> that's what? That's Christian carrying his burden up the hill. And it keeps weighing him down. And it isn't until he gets a real glimpse of the cross that the burden falls away. And he's finally free, free in heart and conscience. We then point him towards the remedy. We must admit real sin where it exists, and repent of it. And specifically, we learn that Jesus is God's guilt offering. Isaiah 53, verse 10, speaks about the guilt offering that Israel had among the animal sacrifices, but Christ is our guilt offering, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It is through Christ that we believers are pronounced not guilty. And only because of him. Now today's study asks the vital question, how can you deal with your guilt? We have guilt. It's real. So how do we deal with it? And I'm going to talk about some wrong ways to deal with it. And it seems to be prevalent in a lot of teaching in our day. So, As we come to God's word, let's ask for his enablement. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. It's in your word that we find the definitions of what guilt is. We also find the truths concerning how to handle guilt, how to be free of it, not through some kind of psychological manipulation, but through the real work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm fearful that there are Christians that go through their life and they feel guilty all the time. They've never really come to the cross and In the sense of realizing that Jesus, we sing it in a hymn, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. May we get that into our hearts. And for unbelievers that might be here today, we pray that they might come to Christ and realize that that's why we have a Savior and that's why we need a Savior. And your Holy Spirit would do his teaching work, we pray. For the glory of Jesus and for our good, we ask these things. Amen. We're talking today about the subject of handling guilt. We all have guilt, so how do we handle it? The first thing to note is that guilt for sin is universal. Unless a person is a psychopath unable to travel down a logical, sound pathway, everyone experiences feelings of guilt because everyone breaks God's law. We do. Guilt for sin is universal because sin is universal. Our text puts it this way. Look at verse 19. What may be known about God is plain to them, to mankind, it's plain to mankind, because God has made it plain to them. So here we are to, told, who's telling us this? It is God, the creator, the Lord of the universe. What he demands of his creatures have been, clearly been seen because he gives that to all people. And he says in verse 20, because of that we are without excuse. So we're guilty as charged. We're guilty for our disobedient conduct and we're liable to penalties as a lawbreaker. Now, this isn't just guilt feelings. This is real guilt for real sin. So people have devised ways to handle guilt. I think they have become excellent handlers. You know what I mean by a handler? Well, a handler is a problem solver. In the movie, the horse whisperer, Robert Redford played the role of a rancher who had particular knack for handling difficult horses. So the story revolves around a woman and her daughter whose horse is totally unmanageable, even dangerous to be around. And so they trailer their horse across the country to this handler known as the Horse Whisperer. And he goes to work to bring calmness and civility to this traumatized stallion. In the business world, when a problem arises in the company due to difficulties in negotiations, let's say, with uh, a contractor or with government regulations, the CEO might call a meeting of the corporate lawyers and he says to them, we have this problem with the contract negotiations and I expect you guys to handle this. That's why I pay you. And when he says, handle this, he is saying, I want you to deal with it. Fix it. Resolve the problem so we can move on. Likewise, because of all of us, Our sinners and all of us experience guilt feelings, but guilt is painful, and it is disruptive to sleep and to happiness and our sense of well-being, and so we try various ways of handling our guilt, none of which work with the sin of breaking God's law, but we try anyway. Even if our efforts are in vain. So, I want to talk a little bit about man's attempts to handle guilt. The first thing that men do is denial. Atheists like comedian Bill Maher, British evolutionist Richard Dawkins, handle their guilt by denying the existence of God altogether. How convenient. These men and others like them, they're known to God, spoken of by God in the scriptures. Let me give it to you. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. God wrote that about the fools. That's the first phrase. They say, There's no God. Oh, but the psalmist goes on to explain why they say that. Let me read it for you. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. Psalm 14, verse 1. That's the whole verse. In other words, the atheist is a person Who by nature and by practice is corrupt and vile and up to no good. He is guilt laden with many sins. And that is why he is an atheist. He's handling his sin. How does he handle it? Well, he's getting rid of sin and its guilt in this way. There's no God. That's a handle. he's he's handling his sin. There's no God. Well, if there's no God, there's no sin against God, right? And if there's no sin against God, then there's no guilt as a lawbreaker. And if there's no guilt as a lawbreaker, there's no guilt feelings. And if I don't have any guilt feelings, I can sleep at night. I can put my conscience to rest. Again, the psalmist says, of the wicked, he boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and he reviles the Lord. And in his pride, the wicked does not ask him In all his thoughts, there's no room for God. I'm reading scripture. In his thoughts, there's no room for God. His ways are always preposterous. He's haughty. And your laws are far from him. Well, of course, because he's a lawbreaker. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, Nothing's going to shake me. I'm reading scripture. I'll always be happy. I'll never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He says to himself, Ah, God has forgotten. He covers his face and he never sees. How convenient. Wow, think about that. It's Psalm 10, verse 3 and following, if you want the text. What's going on here is a lot of denial. He reviles the Lord. He does not seek him out. He does not acknowledge him. He has no room for God. God's laws are far from his thinking. He boasts that life and living are just fine the way they are, while he curses and lies and threatens everywhere present. And then finally he denies the omniscience of God, saying... God suffers from memory loss. He's forgotten. He never sees. How convenient. Get rid of God and rid yourself of guilt. There are people like this. But this is a little different. Than the sin of the lying prophets, and the lying priests in the days of Jeremiah, where he writes of them, the liars, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No. I'm still reading. No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. Jeremiah 6, verse 14 and 15. But you see what's going on here. Peace, peace. Everything's cool. We have that in our society. Ah. Chill out, you know. It'll all work out. Everything's copacetic. It's cool. I would suggest to you that denial, denial is not an adequate way of handling guilt. You can deny all you want. But it's not an adequate way. Of handling guilt. And I'll give you some three reasons. Number one. God has written his law in the book of books. The Bible. And he warns us as he warned the new generation of Israelites through Joshua. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous. And successful. Joshua 1 verse 8. Now you might say, well, I don't have a Bible, or I've never read the Bible. Do you know that that's no defense? When I was in college, a professor would sometimes assign a reading from one of the books in the library and then test us on what we read. Now the book was in the library. It wasn't a textbook that everybody had. The only trouble was that with 100 students in the class, it was sometimes difficult to read the book in the library because guess what? It was always checked out. I can remember sitting there at the library desk waiting for the book to come back. No excuse. Wait your turn. bark yourself at the library desk but read the text, because you're going to be tested on it. Now, we don't have such problems today, because with a computer, a thousand students can read the same book at the same time online and never have to leave their room. The Bible is readily available in hundreds of languages, so we're not exonerated because you haven't read God's law. It's available. The second reason denial is not an adequate handling of guilt is that where the Bible book is not available, and I'm thinking now of third world countries, the truth remains that God has written his moral code in the heart, in the conscience of every person. Let me read it for you. Paul writes to the Romans, Indeed, he says, when pagans... Gentiles, when Gentiles who do not have the law, in other words, they don't have a Bible, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since, here it is, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, and their consciences also bearing witnesses. And their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. And this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares, Romans two, fourteen and following. Paul is saying, everyone knows right from wrong. Everyone. You don't need a Bible to know that God has stamped into your soul, into your heart, into your mind, his moral code. There is enough witness in the creation and in God's dealings with men to show that there's a judgment day coming, and that we are responsible for a moral code. Do you know missionaries have gone to untouched tribes? And guess what? They find in those tribes, they find laws with regard to marriage and no infidelity, no fooling around with somebody else's wife or husband, as the case may be. They find laws with regard to no stealing, no taking something that doesn't belong to you. No missionary's ever been there. The gospel's never come to them. No one brought a Bible to them. Where'd they get this knowledge? God has written it in the heart. And Paul says, yeah, so that they are without excuse. Do Muslims have a Bible or use a Bible? No. Yet the penalty for being a thief if you're a Muslim... What do they do? George just showed it. They cut your hand off. Where did they get the idea that stealing was wrong? You say, well, from the Quran. Well, who wrote the Quran? Mohammed. Where did Mohammed learn that stealing was wrong? Moral code of God resident. In every human being. Paul admits that this inner conscience of sin and righteousness, it's fickle. That's for sure. He says their thoughts now accuse, now even defend. So they flip back and forth between, oh, I feel guilty. No, you're okay. Back and forth we go. Why is that? Because inconsistency with what we know to be true is also part of the sin of our lives. We all fluctuate between doing good and doing evil, even when we possess a copy of the Bible. So denial is not possible in the ultimate sense. The third reason denial is not adequate way for handling guilt is in our guilt, we dumb down the prickly barbs of a sensitive conscience by adjusting our personal standard downward. So what do you mean? Well, you know, people will say, well, let your conscience be your guide. But that cannot be a safe rule of conduct because each person's conscience is formulated on the basis of his or her experience and upbringing. Say, what do you mean? Well, the word conscience itself, but just the word conscience, is consists of a compound word consisting of con, meaning with, and science, meaning knowledge. So conscience means with knowledge. Okay, that's fine as far as it goes, providing that the knowledge a person has been taught is the truth. And supports God's brand of morality. But consider a child who has been raised in an amoral or an immoral environment. Can we say to them, let your conscience be your guide? I think of the children that the Lees, David and Felicia, deal with as our missionaries to Romania. They work with them on the street. And these street urchins in the city of Bucharest are orphans, or they are abandoned children, or they are runaways. And so they are into drugs, they are into sex, prostitution, stealing, everything criminal. How so? Well, they were exposed to an environment where these things were considered normal or the acceptable way to make a living. Their conscience doesn't bother them when they do these immoral things because that is the only knowledge they have. They're operating with a defiled conscience and they're doing what they know. The work of the Lees, our missionaries, is to raise the standard of morality in these children by retraining their consciences with the knowledge of God, which deals with sin and repentance. That's the real way of dealing with these things and pointing them to faith in Jesus Christ as Saviour. So there are ways people try to deal with sin, or they don't deal with it at all. They just ignore it. But it's all related to how conscience operates in them. I would say it this way, however, that conscience is not a safe guide. It is not a safe guide for another reason. In a move of self-preservation... All of us have an uncanny ability to dumb down, can I say it that way, to dumb down the law of God so that we can do it and thus silence any accusatory or guilty conscience. What I am saying is if I cannot rise to the heights of obeying God's law or morality, if I dumb down the law and bring it within my reach, then I can feel good about myself and set my conscience at rest. There's an example of this in Revelation 21, verse 8, which states about all liars, here's what it says, their place will be in the fiery lake, a burning sulfur. This is the second death. Did I read that right? For liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur? Boy, we have a tough time believing that God would punish liars with the same sentence, let's say, as a murderer. But to hedge our bet, we have invented what we call a white lie a lie to bring about some perceived good. And we say, well, a a white lie isn't really a lie, punishable by the lake of fire. So in all this, we treat God like a university professor who knows that 50% of his class will fail his course unless he grades on a curve, And so by dumbing down the standard, by saying, okay, if you get a 60, that'll be a passing grade. With one stroke of his red pen, he has just made winners out of half the losers in the class. And as they end the semester, they feel good about their performances because the standard was lowered to the lowest common denominator for them to receive a passing grade. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but God does not grade on a curve. He doesn't grade on a curve. His standard is 100% perfection. And so Jesus commands us, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, verse 48. That's our obligation. But it is also the nail in our coffin because it is, as the writer of Hebrews said about the Mosaic law or covenant if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another, but God found fault with the people. Oh. God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Hebrews 8, verse 7 and 8. In Paul's own confession, Paul, the Apostle Paul, here's his confession. He says, The law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Romans 7, verse 12. Okay. Then if that's true, what's the problem? He goes on to answer. I know that nothing good lives in me. Oh, in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Romans 7 verse 18. So, nothing wrong with the standard. Nothing wrong with God's law. Everything wrong with our ability to obey it. The fault of the old covenant lied in the heart of the people. The people. So it is with us. And denial is one way we, too, handle our guilt, but it won't wash when we're talking about our relationship with God. So denial. A second way we try to handle our guilt is through rationalization. Now rationalization is an attempt to justify our sinful behavior through comparisons. Redefinitions of what sin is. Using God's character against him in a wrong way. For example we say well, well God is law. God is love. So he won't punish me for my sin. This is a more direct approach to our guilt because instead of trying to squash the guilt feelings, we go to the root of the guilt, which is sin. But the pathway we travel to this is sin in itself because we attempt to make little of what God considers very deadly. It's an attempt to mitigate Or shift blame. When Eve, in her defense before God, said, Oh, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Genesis 3, verse 3. Or when Adam said, Oh, that woman that you put here with me, she gave me of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Genesis 3, verse 12. These are rationalizations. They are attempts to point the finger of guilt in another direction. And undoubtedly it made Adam and Eve feel better, I think momentarily. They thought they had dodged the bullet. But you know the curses of God which followed demonstrated in short order that God wasn't buying any of their blame shifting. There was no excuse for what they did. None. God's law was pointedly clear. Here it is. The Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. We read that. There's no ambiguity there. There's no mystery. There's no hidden meaning. There's no lack of clarity. Eat any fruit, eat all the fruit you want, but don't eat of this one tree in the center of the garden. Oh, and the penalty will be when you eat, you will surely die. All the details are given. But the lie of Satan seemed more plausible. Oh, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Don't you want to be like God? Of course you want to be like God. Everyone wants to be like God. Knowing good and evil. God is shortchanging you. Genesis 3, verse 5. Satan used rationalization to make Adam and Eve feel good about breaking God's law. Don't you know this is going to be good for you? We do the same. Think about it. We will do almost anything to dull pain. The arthritics among us, myself included... Are always reaching for the aspirin or the ibuprofen and more debilitating pain. If that comes our way, like a migraine headache, we reach for the Demerol. And after major surgery in the hospital, we ask the doctor, give me some morphine. We do this to kill pain. I think on a number of occasions when we have rushed our children or grandchildren to the hospital in pain, we question the doctors in the emergency room as to why they didn't administer something for the pain. Why didn't you give something to my child? What's the matter with you? And the answer given is something like this. In the diagnosis state of our examination, we do not want to dull the pain. Whoa, whoa. The pain and its location helps us find out what is wrong. Oh. Rationalization, raising excuses for our sin in an attempt to handle our guilt feelings can be very, very deadly. I think if we are successful in silencing conscience To kill the pain. We may never deal with the sin lying below the surface that's there festering poison and lying deception. Through the pinch of conscience, God is saying, forget the guilt feelings, Deal deal with the sin, or die. The reason people want to have their conscience silenced is they don't want to feel the pain. And God is saying you need to feel the pain. And if you realize the pain, you'll be more inclined to deal with the sin that's causing it. May I say that God has your best interest at heart because in the court of God's impeccable justice there are no excuses, there are no arguments, there are no mitigating circumstances, there is no blame shifting, there are no alibis, there is no defense that you can offer. Paul writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silent, zip it up, And the whole world held accountable, King James Version says, held guilty to God. He goes on, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Romans 3, verse 19 and 20. Paul is saying the law of God was not given to save you. It was given to condemn you. To show you just how hopeless your ability is to obey God apart from his grace. And it is also hopeless to think that guilt can be rationalized away. But people try it all the time. A third way that people try to handle guilt is through performance. Human law makes, human law now, makes provision for such things as restitution or through incarceration, satisfaction for the penalty of the law. You've all heard the expression if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. But when a person is found guilty, of a crime and is sentenced to prison when they go to prison and then they are released from prison years later. We hear the expressions something like this Well, he's paid his debt to society, now he's free to go. But doing the time in prison does not eradicate the guilt, it does not mean that the person didn't do the crime. The guilt remains, and depending on how active the conscience is, it may remain for the rest of one's life. In Matthew 18, Jesus answered Peter's question on how to forgive by telling the parable of a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And so, one by one, they came to him to pay off their debts. It says, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is a measure of money. Let's say this guy just sold millions of dollars to bring it up into our culture. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him a million dollars was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Matthew 18, verse 24 and 25. We look at that and we say it's unlikely that even the liquidation of this debtor's assets, including his wife and children, would bring in enough money to clear the debt. It looks very impossible. But you see, that's the point that Jesus is making. Our debt to God, our culpability for breaking his law is so large, so encompassing, as to be impossible to repay. The man could not repay, and he knew he couldn't. He's going, oh, yeah, he makes a paltry plea, saying, well, if the master will be, just be patient with him and give him a little more time, uh, he'll, he'll pay him everything that he owes, verse 26. But there's no there's no realism in what he's saying. It's just wishful thinking. The man is drowning in debt. He didn't needed more than a reprieve. He needed more than time to clear the debt. He needed the debt to be forgiven which is what his master did. This is all of us as sinners as we stand before God. The moral debt of our sin is so vast, so extensive, so consuming that we have no power by way of performance to eradicate it. A thousand lifetimes would not be enough time. We cannot even stick to a path of repentance and restitution for one month. Let alone for year after year after year after year after year. I think it's good that we know this about ourselves. Some people don't know that about themselves. They think they can pull this off. Boy, they're going to try. This is why Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors. Matthew 6, 9 and following. This was also the lesson of the parable that we just noted. Because the man who owed millions demanded pennies (laughs) from someone who owed him. And when that man could not pay, he threw the man in prison. Well, the master heard about that one. And so he meted out the same punishment to this man who would not show mercy to this guy that owed him pennies when he had just been forgiven millions. And so the master meted out the same punishment. And then Jesus gives this lesson. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Matthew 18, verse 35. What's the principle? The principle is this. You and I owe God millions. That's a huge debt. You will never be able to pay it. I will never be able to pay it. There is no way for you, there's no way for me, a sinner, to make restitution. Your only hope is if God will forgive your debt, if He'll wipe it off the ledger books. This is a move of mercy on God's part. And it's your only resolution to the guilt of your sin and to mine. If you choose to maintain your integrity and you think to yourself, I'm not so bad off as the Bible portrays me. If you think there is still an ounce or two of goodness in you to satisfy your debt to God's law, Then you, like the man in the parable, will experience the anger of God, the master. We read, he turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, although he couldn't pay it back, right? Matthew 18, verse 34. An infinite debt of sin will take an infinity of time to repay To repay, to repay, to repay. Can't do it, can't do it, never can do it. That's the horror of hell. You'll never be able to pay your way out. What's God's solution? God's solution is this. He will forgive the debt on the merit of his son's sacrifice if you'll trust that. This is not leniency on God's part. People in our day may indeed be convinced that their sin is so great as to be beyond restitution to God. They know they've sinned and sinned and sinned. They sense their aggregate weight of years of transgression but they're counting on what they consider to be their little ace in the hole. What's their ace in the hole? Well, God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. He will never require payment for my debt. Really? Really? If you think that, you're a dupe of the evil one. The master in the parable is God. The servant drowning in debt is you. It's me. And when he could not pay, when he remained angry and bitter and unmerciful towards others, God sent him to the torturers for eternity, we read. Where in another parable we read the conclusion there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, verse 13. God is more than love. He's righteous, he's a judge, he's holy. All of which demand that you pay, that I pay for my crimes. If you go the payment route, you want to pay? It's going to take you an eternity in torture to pay. You really want that? God has a better solution and it's this. God's mercy is the solution. In the parable, it was God forgiving the debt that truly dealt with the sin. God forgiving the debt, not asking for repayment. I love Dickens' Christmas Carol because in the Christmas Carol, there's a lot of gospel. Don't know if you knew that. There is. The ghost. In Dickens Christmas Carol. Says. Oh captive bound and double ironed. Cried the phantom. Not to know. That ages of incessant labor. By immortal creatures. For this earth must pass into eternity before the good of which it is susceptible is all developed. Not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short, too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunity abused. Yet such was I. Oh, such was I. What is he saying? He's saying life is too short to make amends for all your sins. That's what he's saying. Even in eternity, where the ghost now lives in incessant labor, his own words, cannot make amends. He goes on to say, at this time of the rolling year, the specter said, I suffer most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down, and I never raised them to that blessed star which led the wise men to a little poor abode. What's he saying? He's saying he never went to Christ himself, he never appointed others to Christ. The testimony of God's salvation was there. He needed to look up, but all he could do is look down. Look down. Brethren, the only answer to the guilt of our sin is to have the sin, the debt, forgiven. And to be forgiven, the debt has to be paid off by another. Jesus, God's Son, Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, then he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting men's sins against them. We implore you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow worker, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians five seventeen and following. Brethren, salvation's day is always now. If you don't know Christ this morning, today's your day to know him. Today is your day of salvation, if you will come to Christ in saving faith. Amen and amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It's powerful. It cuts us. We have a conscience, and it bears witness against us because of our sin. But, boy, we will try any other pathway than coming to Christ. We'll try being good. We'll try turning over new leaves. We hear a lot about that at this time of the year as people talk about New Year's resolutions and such. But old sinners can't make new resolutions. All we can do is choose the same sinful paths that we've chosen in the past. I pray that you'll forgive us for that and that you'll bring us to faith in Christ. Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, but we have to believe it. We have to believe that we are bankrupt, that we cannot contribute, that indeed God must do it all. And he has done it all in the person of his son. Who would have thought that God would sacrifice his own son for the likes of us, but he did that. And his righteousness will be accrued to us credited to our account if we trust Christ and not our own goodness. Paul says of our own goodness, there's none good, not even one. And I think he meant himself as well as all those that he spoke to, the church of Rome. Bless your word, O Lord. Show us the necessity of Jesus And the sufficiency of Jesus to the praise and glory of your name and your salvation. Amen. Amen. Our closing hymn is 495 in the red hymnal. I love this hymn. It sounds like a gloomy hymn at first. But it's not a gloomy hymn because it's dealing with despair and it says even in my despair I know where to go. Where do I need to go? I need to come to Christ. No, not despairingly. Come I to thee. It's not a hopeless thing to come to Christ. Say, I got a lot of sin, but There's a place to be that I can go where I can have that sin dealt with and forgiven and cleansed. Let's stand together as we sing. And then afterwards we'll take a 10-minute break and then regather for the Lord's table. And that'll be the end of our services for the day. No, not despairingly. 495 in the Trinity. ten-minute break. Regather when you hear the music.